and there was a wall of water on their left and their right, death behind them and freedom of life before them. And they walked through on dry ground. As they went through the water, their old life chased them into it. Baptism is this idea of getting washed by the water, but it's not really that you're washed by the water. It's a representation of something. It's a public statement about something that's been done inside of you, and it parallels something, and I want to share that with you today. So before we get into it, here's what I want to say. I grew up in the 90s. Anybody else grow up in the 90s? How about the 80s? We have any 80s kids here? Great. You'll know what I'm about to talk about. So there was this thing that pretty much everybody that I knew had in their house in the 90s. Maybe a different version of it in the 80s. They, it was called the NES Classic. Who knows what I'm talking about? Yes. Nintendo Entertainment System. And uh, if it was the 80s, Atari. So just to keep you with me. Uh, if you're older than that, the arcade down the street where you would bring, I don't know, what did it cost back then? Was it quarters? Pennies. Thanks, inflation. Um, but here, here's what I am thinking about, right? I remember playing the NES when I was a kid. And this is the most frustrating thing, is that you would play a game, almost all of them, and when your character ran out of life, you had to go back to the beginning. You didn't get to save. And so this is the struggle that all of us had to deal with. So everyone who's younger than us, we didn't have memory cards or systems that re just remembered things. And you could start where you left off as if there are no consequences to the actions of your failure. You had to deal with how much of a loser you really were when you played when you played the video game and you had to start back from the beginning. Um, so that reminds me of what we're talking about today. In that the consequences are real to the choices we make and the failures that we have. But then there's God's grace. And God's grace redeems us from our own failures and gives us a save point. Now, I own something today called the NES Classic. Has anyone heard of this thing? It's a little miniature version of what the original Nintendo looked like, and it's preloaded with games, but it does something the NES couldn't do. It allows you to save where you're at, so you can basically cheat, get as far as you can, and then start from that point until you get better. What I found out in my old age is that I still can't get any farther. <laughs> so that save point didn't really help me. But anyway, that's the idea. God gives us a save point. He redeems us. He takes away the consequences because he took the consequences on himself on the cross. And that is God's mercy and grace. Giving yourself over to that and making a public commitment is what baptism is all about. Now, when we look in scripture, we often think that water is representative of life. 
And that's true. That's true of just the natural world. You can go longer without food than you can without water. Water is absolutely necessary for life. But water is also extremely destructive. And though we often think about water and its parallel to life in the scripture, water is also representative of death and destruction. So that's a good way to start. Hey, everyone who's new, death and destruction. So I want to walk you through a little bit of scripture to show you this amazing parallel about what baptism is and what it means. And so we're going to start ourselves in Genesis chapter 6, verses 17 through 22. Uh, I'm just going to read it for you and then kind of explain what I'm talking about. So it says, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all the flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark. To keep them alive with you, they shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. So two of every kind will come to you, and you keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to what God had commanded. So what is happening in this passage is the earth has gotten so corrupt that God gives us a fresh start. And he wipes out the wicked. There are consequences to evil because God is just. And so water is representative of death. And inside of that water is buried the old ways. But rising above it is Noah in the ark, the one who was righteous and was saved from the destruction. And it moves forward. So that is like the picture of baptism taking your life, turning from the wickedness of the world, burying it under the water, and coming up fresh and anew. But it's after the flood that God gives his fresh start to a nation. And so we pick up in Genesis 15, and God picks a man. It says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. He said then to Abram, you know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward. They shall come out with great possession. So after the flood, God picks a man to be to birth a great nation that he has chosen to be his representatives on the earth. That is the nation of Israel, and they start with Abraham. And God tells Abraham in this moment, this glorious moment where he's saying, you're going to be well-known. You're going to be the father of a nation. I have chosen you. Here's the news. Your descendants are going to be slaves for 400 years. Isn't that excellent news? Isn't that what you want to hear? No, you don't want to hear that. But God will save them. And so what we're going to talk about is after that 400 years of slavery, how God saved his people. And we find that story in Exodus chapter 14, not 15, 14. And so what has gone on in this moment is the people have been enslaved for 400 years. 
in Egypt, in their slavery, they have had to participate in pagan ritual and worship and worship false gods. They have had to build the buildings and create the world that the Egyptians so loved and made them great. And God sends someone, Moses, to save them. Now, here's the problem. Pharaoh doesn't want to get rid of his free workforce. And so he says no, because Pharaoh thinks of himself as bigger than God. And so he thinks he's going to win this fight. He says, I'm not going to let these people go. And they go through a series of 10 plagues. Now, we're not going to go into the whole thing tonight, but just so you know, each of the 10 plagues that God brings against Egypt is mocking the false gods that they worshipped. In particular, if you think about it, the largest god in the Egyptian worship was the sun god Ra, and the ninth plague was darkness. And he made the sun dark. And God is mocking their false gods and showing, I am bigger than the gods you worship. Don't mess with me. Let the people go. But then the final plague comes. And God returns the favor to the Egyptians. See, the Egyptians were starting to get worried that their slave force was getting so big that they could actually rebel. So what he did to control them and to scare them was kill all of the children, under all the boys under the age of two. Now God is returning the favor, and he's saying, I'm bringing death upon the land of the firstborn from every household. But God is not going to discriminate. He's saying death comes upon every household, the firstborn son. The only way to escape death is to sacrifice a lamb. And when you sacrifice the lamb, you paint blood on the post and lentils of the door, the top and the sides. And when the angel of death comes, if it sees lamb's blood covering the door, instead of death, your house receives life, and it passes over you. On the heels of that happening, the pharaoh of Egypt falls to his knees and says, the people can go. And he lets the Egyptian people go because he's distraught at what God has done to the people of Egypt in repaying the debt that he gave to the Israelites. So now they're free. They get to walk away. And that's where we pick up in verse 5 of chapter 14. The people are fleeing Egypt. Now, it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So they've let the slaves go. They've marched out of Egypt. And now Pharaoh gets a moment to himself where he thinks, what was I doing? I just let our slave force go. Uh, I changed my mind. Let's go hunt them down. So he made ready his chariots and took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pushed the children of Israel or, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and the chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, camping by the sea beside Par-Hera, uh, Pi-Hahiroth before Baal-Zephon. 
And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, so they were afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they gave, then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, why have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? So, they're out of Egypt, they're backed up against the Red Sea, and they're free. But now the Pharaoh is pursuing them. The old life that they left is chasing after them. And that old life wants to destroy them and make them captured again. And so they think, maybe it would be better for us to just die. Why did you do this to us, Moses? And they cry out to God. And it says, is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness when life comes at you hard, clinging back to those old comforts, claws at your shoulders. The world wants to get a hold of you, and the things you gave up want your attention again. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, stand still and see salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. What an interesting predicament. They're backed up against the Red Sea. The Egyptians are coming for them, the strongest army in the world, and they're backed up against the Red Sea. They don't know what they're doing. They're asking Moses for direction, and God tells Moses, go forward. And they say, well, this direction is an army that's going to kill us, and this direction is a sea that's going to drown us. What do we do? God said, go forward. Verse 16, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over by Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And a pillar of cloud went before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud of darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come by near all that night. So what God has done is said, stretch out your hand over the sea, and you'll walk on dry ground. And then God sends a pillar of fire by night and of cloud by day to protect them from the Egyptians and to guide them on their way. Can you imagine if you're sitting in the desert and an army of chariots is coming towards you and a giant sea is behind you and then out of nowhere a tornado of fire shows up? That's a pretty scary moment. And when Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right and their left. And the Egyptians pursued them into the midst of the sea. All of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning 
watch. That the Lord looked down upon the army and the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians, and he took off their chariot wheels, and that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights against the Egyptians. So God is fighting for the Israelites as they walk through the Red Sea on dry ground with a water, a wall of water on each side of them. On to their left is water, to their right is water, behind them is death, and before them is freedom. That's the picture. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, that their chariots and their horsemen, and Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians and the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of their land, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. And the next chapter starts out this way. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord. He has triumphed generously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. So this is the picture. This is what has gone on. God has rescued the Israelites. He rescued them with the sacrifice of the lamb, with the blood on the doorposts. Because of the blood of the lamb that was on the doorposts, instead of death, they received life. And then they were set free from the Egyptians. But just because you've been set free by the blood of the lamb doesn't mean that your old life isn't going to chase you. And the old life, the Egyptians, the false worship, and the comforts of having a life of no risk, because, yeah, they were slaves and they worked for everything and they were forced labor, but they also had an understanding of where their next meal was coming from. Freedom meant wandering around in the desert, not wondering what comforts they might have. Freedom involved risk. And in the midst of that life chasing after them, they started to yearn for the comforts of slavery again instead of the risk of freedom. But then the waters opened up, and they walked through the water. And there was a wall of water on their left and their right, death behind them and freedom of life before them. And they walked through on dry ground. As they went through the water, their old life chased them into it. The Egyptians and their army went right into the Red Sea behind them. And the old life is trying to claw them back and pull them out of the water and bring them back to Egypt, back under the world's control, back under the control of culture. But they made it all the way through. 
And when they turned around, Moses looked and raised his hand, and the waters came crashing down on the Egyptian soldiers, leaving their old life dead and buried. Just like baptism. Baptism doesn't make you saved. It's a commitment, a public statement that show for someone who is saved. The Egyptians were already, or I'm sorry, the, the Israelites were already saved because of Passover. Because of the lamb, they were already saved. But then they put their faith where their mouth was when they walked through the sea. And they got cleansed in freedom on the other side as their old life got buried by the water. And so for those who are getting baptized tonight, that's the picture. You have been saved by the grace of Jesus, by the blood of the Lamb. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is the Lamb that saved you. So tonight isn't about being saved. It's about making a public statement that you were and saying, as I go into the water, this is the death of my old life, and I am burying it there. And as I come out, I leave that old life behind me, dead and buried, and I come out into new life like the Israelites escaping slavery. Now, I want to share a couple more things with you. In Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 16, what we see is the New Testament church leaving just talking to the Jews and starting to talk to the Gentiles, meaning that the message of the gospel, the saving grace of the blood of the Lamb, is not for a specific people. It's for everyone. It is for you to make that choice to give yourself over to the Lamb and leave behind the old life and the world that is trying to bring you down and experience the freedom in Jesus. That's your choice, and it's a choice for everyone. But what happens is that afterwards, after talking to Peter and Paul in Acts chapter 10 and 16, the Romans and the Greeks who met with them got baptized immediately. And so this is something about modern church that bugs me, is that when we have baptism services, we plan them for a month, and we walk through what baptism means with you, and we teach you about it, and we expect you to have a testimony. And I'm happy that people will share their testimony, and I'm happy that we have the baptismal pool. But what bugs me is that we don't do what the, new, the early church did. When you make a commitment, you just make the commitment, and you just do it, and you share that public statement immediately. And so I say that because at the end of the two people who are planned on getting baptized, I'm going to invite anybody else that might want to. And so if you're thinking about it, or if it's something that you haven't thought of or didn't even think about coming tonight, know that invitation is there. The pool is full. You don't have to wait. But I want to end with this last verse, or this last section of verses in, in Galatians 3, 27 through 29. It says this, for as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We started with Abraham. We're ending with Abraham. Baptism is the sign, the public commitment that you belong to Jesus. Why is that important? The book of Galatians was written because people had a question. And the question was, because Christianity was born out of Judaism, was what is the sign that you're saved? Because in Judaism, it was circumcision. And what Paul is writing here is no. There is no Jew nor Greek, no male nor female, no slave nor free. Jesus is for everyone. And the sign of the covenant, of the new covenant, isn't just to males. You don't have to marry in to salvation like you had to marry in to the covenant in Judaism because only the males could be circumcised. The message is for everyone. The message is for you and you. The message is out there for all. The problem is the world wants to claw you back in. This is the analogy I'll use. Imagine you live at home. That should be hard to do. Just kidding. Imagine you live at home and you live with a family who loves you. I hope that's easy to imagine. But the world outside of that home is tempting you. It's tempting you with unhealthy relationships or behavior, things that alter your mind. It's tempting your lust or appetites inside of you that distracts you from your home or takes you away from your family. And so what you decide to do is to give in to what the world is asking you to do. The world got its claws in you, and it pulls you out. You decide to run away from home. If you choose to run away from home, is it someone else's fault that you're homeless? The answer is no. Because the truth is, if you lived at home with a family who loved you, that door is open to you to come back. The only thing you have to do is to turn your back on the things that got you to move out in the first place. Turn your back on the things that clawed you out of your home. Turn your back on the world and the temptation of it and just say, I want to go back home. That's what God is offering. God is a, is a God. He's the father who loves you. And he's just saying, I love you. I know what's best for you. And the door is open to you. And under here, when you live here, you'll be safe from unhealthy relationships or addictions or things that tear you away from the true love that you could be experiencing. If you just come under this roof, you just have to let go of the world that's holding on to you to come here. And when you do that, then it's time to make the public commitment of baptism. And baptism is that sign. And it's meant for everyone. It's not special to anyone. Like the sign of the covenant used to be in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's for you. And those who got baptized in the New Testament didn't wait. They just made the commitment and got baptized. So tonight, we're going to celebrate. Because there's at least two people in this room who are looking to make that public commitment. So in this moment, let's pray for them.
Father God, thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for opening the door to salvation and for sacrificing yourself in taking on the wrath yourself so that we don't have to experience the judgment or consequences of our actions. Thank you also for the free will that you give us to choose that so that our love for you is real when we choose you over the world. God, I pray for anyone here who needed to hear that, that they give their hearts over to you. But God, thank you for those who already have. And I thank you for Nate and for Sarah who are getting baptized tonight because they're ready to tell the world about the commitment they've made. God, thank you for the love they have for you and for what they're going to share tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.